A number of you know Roy Phillips as the board president of the Unity Church here in Shreveport, which met for a while on Sunday afternoons in our building. He's also served for at least five years, maybe more, um, as Unity's representative on the World Religion Day Committee of shreveport Bossier, which is where I have come to know him and to consider him a friend. Um, in 2001, he retired from his position as the founding campus president of Miami-Dade College's Homestead Campus and returned to his childhood home in rural Webster Parish outside of Minden, Louisiana. From a two-room schoolhouse there where black and white children could not even share the same schoolyard and where his teachers told him, you're starting out a step behind, so work hard to be two steps ahead. He went on to attain his bachelor's degree in secondary education from Eastern Michigan University, his master's in education from Wayne State University in Detroit, and his Ph.D. in urban secondary administration from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. It was there, while finishing up his dissertation, that he met an up-and-coming writer, Alex Haley, and had a conversation that would shape much of his life's direction for years to come, including the story you will hear today. Dr. Phillips lives today on the land now owned by his family in Webster Parish. He and his wife, Vera, recently celebrated their 53rd anniversary, and they have raised eight children, four biological and four that they adopted in the state of Florida. He's currently at work on a comprehensive African-American history of Webster Parish. Actually, he's finished that one. That one's um, going into book form now. And he's working on a project to teach African-American history using children's literature. Will you please welcome Dr. Roy Phillips. Good morning. Thank you so much, Susan, for that fine introduction. Chaplain Jarrell, members of this congregation, I bring you greetings from Unity of Shreesport, and I thank you all for your wonderful, friendly hospitality of allowing us to worship in your church while we're on our journey of building a new church. We have just purchased two acres of land at Kingston at Burt Coon near the Southern Hills Recreation Park. And we're in the process. We've just hired an architect and an engineer to lay out our master plan. So I thank you all for your beautiful hospitality. I always consider this as my second home. Coming back here, we enjoyed the camaraderie of the membership of this church so much. Today I'd like to uh, walk you kind of through the history of my family. As Susan pointed out, I was motivated in 1968 by Alex Haley. At that time, Alex was in the process of doing roots. And we invited him as graduate students at Michigan to come to speak to us about his research. I was so fascinated by him that I stayed up almost half of the night talking to him about his research and how would I go about doing my research of my family history. Alex gently said, first go and talk to the old people in your family before they die. I did so. I had a grandmother who lived to be 102, on which I live on her land now. She shared with me the history of the family. She told me, I went back in 1980, and I sat with her at her bedside, and she told me the history of the family part of the history of the family. 
She said that her grandfather, whose name was Alfred Gooding, was sold to a man by the name of McDade in Louisiana. A man by the name of McDade in Louisiana. Since that time, I found out who the McDades are. I found that there were five brothers, one of which owned Alfred Gooding. His name was James Germany McDade. The McDade family is very prominent in Shreveport, Bossier City. In fact, one of your governors, Buddy, Buddy Roma, came out of that family. And if you go down Highway 71, you will find this Scarpino Plantation and other plantations. And if you go into Fillmore Horton, you'll see other evidence in their graveyards of the burial of most of the McDade people. The McDade people was a Scottish-Irish family that came from Scotland. As a matter of fact, I visited with a lady by the name of Gretchen Benner. I happened to be in a lawyer's office in Shreesport when I came back, and I mentioned the McDade family, and he put me in touch with Gretchen Benner, who lives on Rutherford Street, a very kind lady who taught at Southern University at Shreesport, and she gave me the history of the McDade family. They were Scott-Irish people who immigrated into America around the 1700s. In fact, they were evicted from Scotland by Oliver Cromwell, a revolutionary leader. And they came to America and they scattered from Virginia to South Carolina to Georgia to Alabama, and later they immigrated into Bossier Parish and East Texas. That family I have made touch with and I've collected their history also. I would like to tell you a little bit about the research that I underwent. First, I began to collect the history as I am still collecting history of people who live in Minden and Northwest Louisiana where my ancestors settled somewhere during the 1840s and the 1850s as slaves. Of course, when the McDade family moved, they came here first from Montgomery County, Alabama, in a little county, a little area called Mount Medge. And they brought their slaves with them into this area. They brought their slaves into uh, Bossier Parish, and some went into East Texas. I began to collect stories about the family from the ancestors, some of whom, the lady who birthed me, her name was Alice Gage Lowry. She was 109 years old. And I also have other relatives who just died. One was the fifth oldest person, well, actually the first oldest person in Louisiana, the Thornton sisters, whom you might have read about in the Shreveport Times. They were part of my relatives. There were three sisters. One lived to 114, 109, 106, and 102. So they were old people. So they had a lot of history in their head. So I collected a lot of that history in terms of the ancestral history of that family. I also began to go into the census records to look up the names of these people. Alfred Gooding, I found, first lived in Virginia, born in 
1849, and he was brought into Louisiana as a boy. According to my grandmother, he was shipped into here, and later on, I began to research this, what was meant by shipping, and I found out that the first came by wagon train into probably southwest Arkansas, uh, and then took ferry boats uh, to the Red River and traveled into Bossier Parish. And if you notice along Bossier, there are a lot of the plantations along that parish, along that river, the Red River, that brought a lot of people into this area. I also began to look at obituaries to look at ancestors who had lived, and I went to graveyards and studied gravestones. And I also went to church and I went into the history of many of the black churches that formed during Reconstruction and found the history of a lot of our relatives who established the churches after slavery because after slavery, blacks were not welcome in white churches, mostly Methodist and Baptist churches. And they began to set up their own churches. So I went into the church history of the parish and discovered the people, some of my people, who organized and established churches in this area. I also went into slave records. I went to the Bossier Parish Library and began to look up slave records of people who came into this area. Also, I went and began to do a DNA analysis to trace the history of my family and where they came from. And as I took this uh, DNA analysis, I discovered that uh, they came from uh, an area in West Africa, as most of the slaves came from areas from Angola, Angola all the way to Mali. This was the extent of the slave boundary, the slave trade. However, I discovered through my DNA analysis, through the Y chromosome, that part of the parents came from the country of Sierra Leone, which is here. Now, Sierra Leone started as a French colony, later taken over by the British. And I found that they came from an ethnic group called the Mende people, M-E-N-D-E, the Mende people, who comprise about 30% of the population of that country. The Mende and also the Creole people uh, and also there's another ethnic group that occupy that area. So that's the, the, the uh, mitochondria DNA from that area. The Y chromosome I found and discovered and I was quite surprised to find that out came from the Central African Republic here in the center kind of Africa below the country of Chad, the Central African. So I discovered that, that they came from that area. Now I began, I went to Africa in, uh, at the end of my retirement from the community college Miami-Dade and I was invited there by a chief and a member of the Ghanaian parliament to help them to establish community colleges there. They were interested in patterning their technical colleges after community colleges in America. So I went there at the invitation of a chief, uh, we call him Chief Nana Gitti, who is the divisional chief 
in Cape Town, uh, Ghana, and by his friend uh, Christine Chacha, who was a member of the parliament there. I went there and spent some time, and when I went there, one of the things that I did is I went and visited the slave castles. When the European people, I'm going to talk a little bit about that history, when they came, the Portuguese and Dutch and other groups came into West Africa, they began to trade with the West African people. And one of the things that the West Africans did was lease them land along the coastline where they built castles. And one of the castles that you'll find in front of my book, where I kneeled and prayed at the Cape Coast Castle in Cape Coast, West Africa, Ghana, West Africa. I went into the castles were actually holding places for slaves. Holding places. I went into the castles and the thing that inspired and motivated me to write the book was what I saw there and the stories that, I, that were told me about how they were kept. I went into this slave castle and I noticed the cannons on the top where the Europeans, of course, tried to keep other European people from coming to that territory, so they kept cannons there and also kept the people, the tribe, and other people from coming there to disturb the slave trade. I went into the uh, Cape Coast Castle, and I went into the dungeons below the castle where they kept the slaves. They kept them in cells, and they kept them there until the boats came. During the time of the colonial expansion of Africa, that was the so-called triangular slave trade in which the English, first of all the Portuguese who came there uh, around the 1400s and began to trade with the African people there. And they began to, began to sell by Africans. Now, a person that was a domestic slave uh, system in West Africa and I'm going to talk a little bit about that so I can make you acquainted with how the slave trade developed because Africans were also involved in the selling of their people, in the selling of their people. Basically, uh, when I began to look at how the people became slaves, they became slaves in six ways. The first way in which they became a slave is if they were law violators, like people in Europe, if you were a law violator, you became a slave and you got sold into America as an indentured slave. That's how a lot of European people came here. So if you were a law violator, you, you, you had to serve some time as a slave. Another means of which you became a slave is a loss of your kinship or your ethnic kinship. When you lost your ethnic kinship, you became a slave by the group that uh, took you in. The most common way in which people became slaves was through ethnic conflicts between groups. Now, there were many groups in West Africa, and I can name, and I just named the Mandate people, and the people who were in the Central African Republic called the Mabuti people were also an ethnic group of which my X chromosome came from. So ethnic conflicts, people were taken as slaves, and they were sold. Also, 
the, some of the large states in Africa, vassal states, actually gave slaves as tributes. And also unpaid debts. If you owed somebody, you became a slave. Or if a famine or drought came and you had no way of making a living, you sold yourself into slavery. So that was domestic slavery in Africa. However, that changed after the European people came and they gave a new spin to the slave system. When the Portuguese came into Africa, they came at the end of the great empires. There were three great empires in West Africa. The first empire was called the Ghanaian Empire that extended into a large territory in what is called the Western Sudan. After the fall of Monroe and civilization along the Nile Valley, people began to migrate into the western Sudan area, into the areas of Mali and into this section here. So the Ghanaian Empire, which was formed by the Saniki people around 700 AD, and that empire lasted until about 1200 AD, this empire uh, occupied a vast territory from this section here all the way into here. And they were ruled by great kings or emperor kings. And they were powerful kings. And one of the interesting things about Ghana is that the Gary around Ghana and the Senegal was called the Gold Coast because at the very end of the Niger River, which flows into the Atlantic, there were mines of gold. So the Ghanaian people began to trade with people in North Africa. And there were two sources of products that they traded, actually three. One was gold that came from the Gold Coast, and another was salt. Salt came from Northern Africa, and they traded salt and gold and people in this area. Now, the Ghanaian Empire was established by a Mande-speaking people, including people called the Sise, the Drame, the Kante. They were ethnic groups. And this empire fell around 1200, around 1200. Now, the people in this empire raised cotton, millet, and sorghum, sir, sorghum. Saga. Those were the products. But I said the greatest economy was in gold, salt, and slavery. After the fall of Ghana, a Muslim group called the Almoravide, led by Abu Bakr, overran Ghana and ruled for a period of time. However, later on, a group of people called the Mandingo people gained control of the gold and salt trade and became the rulers of the new empire called Mali, which started in 12, Mali, which started around 1200 AD and lasted until 1500, where they were actually defeated by another group of people that I mentioned in a moment. Mali uh, had some great kings, one of the great kings was called Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa led a pilgrimage in, 1230, in 1324 
where he carried some 60,000 people into Mecca and Medina. As some of you will recall from your history, the Muslim overran, overran North Africa and went into Portugal and Spain and occupied it for some 600 years until they were evicted uh, later on. In fact, the Moors went into almost into Europe, and if it hadn't been stopped by Charlemagne at the Battle of Tours, we would be Muslims today in America. Charlemagne stopped them, but they did settle into Spain and Portugal. They became vassals to the Muslim people until actually they were evicted by King Ferdinand and Elizabeth, uh, uh, Isabella during the period of the 1500s. Actually, uh, in 1481, Portuguese soldiers landed on the coast of Mali because the Portuguese, after they had uh, ended the yoke of occupation of the Moors into that country, were interested in breaking that trade along the Mediterranean trade, along the Mediterranean Sea, and also they wanted to stop that trade going into, uh, into the eastern part of the world, into India. They were interested in going to that area. So they began to set up these slave castles along the way. This, the uh, Mali Empire ended somewhere around the 1300 and was actually ended by a great king called Sunni Ali. He became the ruler, and one of the things that Sunni Ali did was establish great universities in that area, Timbuktu being one of the great cultural centers where the uh, Muslim, black Muslim people uh, began to set up their cultural centers there. However, the greatest king of uh, uh, Songhai was Askia Muhammad. Askia Muhammad actually also took a trip to Mecca and Medina because most of the people in the in the West Africa then became Muslims under these great rulers. So a lot of the slaves who actually eventually ended up into America were actually Muslims when they when they came here. They were not. However, when the European people came, the, uh, especially the Portuguese and others, they began to set up a different kind of slavery, which set the pattern for the rise of racism. Now, domestic slavery in Africa was not based upon color or anything of that kind, but when the Portuguese and others came, a different kind of slavery started. And there were actually five factors that set the tone for this. And these five factors are mentioned in a book by Martin Bernal, who is a scholar at Cornell University. He wrote a book called The Black Athena, in which he outlined the history of Europe at that time and what happened. One of the things that affected slavery at that time was the rise of European Christianity. In 1452, Pope Nicholas V issued a bulldom diversity in which he said that people who are infidels or pagan, including Muslims and others, who if you're not a Christian, you could be put into slavery. You could be made slaves. So that bulldom diversity was issued in 1452. 
As the Christian, European Christian church began to emerge, they became alienated by Near Eastern and African influences. Because in Rome, if you looked, most of the goddess and goddess were goddess from the Near East and Africa. And one of the goddesses in the Europe, especially in Paris, was the goddess Isis. If you know anything about Isis, she was the first Madonna. She was the black Madonna. And if you go to Paris now and go to Rome, you'll find statues of the black Madonna. The European people became alienated. They even wanted to establish their own image in the church. So they became alienated by these goddesses and these gods that had been created. And they looked upon African people and began to set a different image of who these people were. A second factor was the rise of the concept of progress, a new paradigm that African and Middle Eastern were backward, static, and lacking in the progress of the new age of discovery. The new age of discovery, a different mindset and a different paradigm began to emerge. The most damaging thing that emerged was a rise of racism. The rise of racism. From the writing of three European scholars in the university, Northwestern University of Europe, especially one of the universities in Germany, and if I'm pronouncing this correctly, please correct, uh, correct, please, uh, correct me. I call it Göttingen. At that university in Germany, three professors, one by the name of Jeff Blumenbach, professor of natural history at that university, began to write about a new kind of race. He divided human beings into three races, the blacks, the whites, and the yellow. Another scholar, Conte de Gumino, and also Carl Mueller began to write new literature that began to spread into Europe. And these three men laid the foundation for a new paradigm about man, a new paradigm. And this paradigm was based upon geography and your physical features, your physical features. They wrote that the people who lived in the northern climates of the world were superior. They were superior in intellect, moral character, to the people in the southern cradle of the world. This view spread with expansion of Europeans into Asia and the New World of the Americas. It became interwoven into the belief system and practices of major institutions of European societies, including, first, the church, politics, education, economic sphere. Early American fathers introduced the concept into the legal and social fabric of the American society, and it became the natural order of things. The fourth and last factor was the rise of Romanticism. As a European nation-state emerged, it placed a new importance on geography and national characteristics. They developed a feeling that people who lived and developed in the cold climates are more vital and intelligent 
than people who live and develop in the southern cradle of the world. The colorful impact of these forces created a new worldview of people. Their past and future were based upon hierarchical racial species paradigm, in which people of European descent were viewed as endowed by the creator to rule and conquer. This created a rationale for the enslavement and dehumanization of people of color. Now that's what's wrong. Now, I began to look at how people from West Africa there, there were many cultural groups there. There were actually four major language groups. The first language group was called the Niger Kodofanian group, which occupied the majority of Africa. The Koshian group, which was mostly people uh, spoke in the southern African region around Namibia and South Africa. The Afro-Asiatic, which are the Jews or the Semitic groups, and the uh, Arabic groups, which formed along the Somalia, Yemen, Egypt, that group, that's the Afro-Asiatic group, and the Nilo-Saharan group, which actually extended from the country of Chad through Uganda and into that region. Now, what did the people do before they came here? Now, most of Africans were agriculturalists. They grew cotton, they grew sorghum, millet, and things like that. They were agriculturalists. They were agriculturalists, they were fishermen, they were hunters, they were metal workers, and they also were art workers. If you go to Africa, some of the beautiful fabrics of, of cloth you can find there. They were actually people who made things, but they were primarily agriculturalists. Now, when the Portuguese came and began to colonize, they began to move into America, Columbus, 1492, and the people began to colonize the Caribbean islands. Now, in the Caribbean islands, there was sugarcane, which became the main product of trade, sugarcane and tobacco, the triangular slave trade. Now, slavery in Louisiana, and I'm going to hit now on the history of Louisiana, Louisiana became a slave state in 1812 after Henry Jackson defeated the English at the Battle of New Orleans Louisiana became a slave state after Louisiana became a slave state there was a movement of people from the upper south and I just indicated that my grandmother said that her grandfather lived in Virginia where the McKays were McDades in Virginia but the brigades and people of the Upper South began to migrate into the Lower South and bring their slaves here. In 1793, Elijah Whitney divided the cotton gin, which, had which had de developed an explosion for labor. So people began to move from these states, and I found out that other of my relatives uh, were born also in Maryland. The Brooks family, Green and Leah Brooks, came out of Maryland. And the Green and the, uh, the Brooks family and the Gooding family came together in marriage, which produced my ancestors on that side of the family. They came out of Virginia and they came out of Maryland, where the McDades lived, in, in, especially in, in the area of Virginia 
and they began to come into the lower south. Now, as they moved into Louisiana, the McDade family began to move from these states, Virginia, uh, into the Carolinas, and into Georgia, into the Alabama. And somewhere around probably the early 1800s, they began to move into Bossier Parish. Now at that time, Webster Parish did not exist. Webster Parish was not formed until around, I think, 1871. So actually, slavery was heavy in Bossier Parish. Now in the McDade, uh, between the four, five McDade brothers, they owned about 84 slaves that they brought into this area. And they began to become highly involved in cotton. Cotton. Cotton was the chief product of bringing slaves into the state of Louisiana. Now, when I traced the history of my people, I first found them in Claiborne, Paris, around Homer, Louisiana. That's where I first found Homer. Now, my father's folks came out of Georgia, where also there were McDades. They came out of Georgia. And a man by the name of George Green Harris, who was born in 1848, came into this area, and according to my grandfather, he said he was walked into this area uh, behind a wagon train into this area as a slave. Now, during slavery time, many families were divided. Now, many of these families were actually merged with European families because I found that there were a lot of mulattoes, that is a the white slave master took liberty with African slave women and had children. So when I look at the Brooks family, I look at very light-skinned people that part of my family came out of. And also when I look at the family on my father's side, his grandfather, his great-grandfather was a mulatto, and they came into this area. Now basically, they served as slaves during that period. At the end of slavery, a new kind of slavery emerged. After the end of the Civil War, what happened, you had the emergence of what is called the shackropping system, in which both whites and blacks served kind of really, as, you might say, indentured people. Now, I know about shackropping because that's what my father did when I first was born. I'm almost 76 years old, and I, I would know my father as a shackropper. During that time, what the slave owners did at the end of the war, they offered to keep the blacks on their plantation. They said, look, we'll give you a portion of land, and let you farm and a little land, and you got to give us a portion of your earning. Now, the blacks could never keep up because what happens is that sometimes your crops would go bad, but you still had to pay. You're always in debt to the, to the slave owner or to the, to, to the person who owned that, that plantation. So for a long time, after, after the end of slavery, they were tied to the land by the sharecropping system. Now, around the 1880s, I went into the, I went into the uh, Webster Parish records at the courthouse, and I found that the Alfred Gooding slave, he and his wife had earned enough money to buy 80 acres of land from the Vicksburg Shreveport Pacific Railroad, because railroads began to come into this area from Shreveport and the Mendon and across. They began to lay these rails. So he bought his land, 80 acres, and he began to farm. 
into the uh, Webster Parish there along Bellevue Road. If you look highway, I think it's the Bellevue Road, 158, one of those highways there. He bought this farm there, 80 acres of land. But when he died, his land was taken. As many black people's lands were taken, and they were ran off of the land and became sharecroppers again. So when I was born in 1934, my parents were sharecroppers. 1934, sharecroppers. And I remember as a little boy of six years old, I picked cotton. I had to go out and get up early in the morning before the sun rise, and you went out and you picked cotton all day long in the field with your parents as the slaves had done. So that's the atmosphere I grew up in. And you went to schools that were two-room schoolhouses called Rosenwald School. Now, who was Rosenwald? Julius Rosenwald was a rich Jew. And Rosenwald began to contribute his money to southern states to establish rural school for black children. So I started my education in a rural two-room school called a Rosenwald School along Fuller Road. And these schools were associated with churches, churches, Methodist and Baptist churches. So that's how I started my education there. However, the Great World War came and the great migration of blacks out of the South. So my family left the South twice, to California, after the war came back, and then Michigan. And that's where I grew up and had my education in the state of Michigan, from junior high, high school, to college, the state of Michigan. Now, the thing that attracted me back, as Susan said, was land, because my father said, always own land. Never be without land. So I came back, and there were nine heirs that I bought out. And my wife and I acquired 20 more acres, so I have about 30 acres of land that we live on. And as Susan pointed out, what I'm doing now, because I want children to understand the history of people in this country. So one of the things I'm going to do is I'm creating a publishing country to write the history of our people. African, through the slave, and up to now, so that our children understand the roots of their culture, not only whites, but blacks, kids, need to understand the history of where we came from and how we came here. So I thank you so much for this opportunity to talk to you, and I will be outside if any of you want to buy this book. It's called Exodus, and the reason I call it Exodus because when I went to the castles, I went to the door of no return. What was the door of no return? After you got out of the cells, the dungeons, you went across a courtyard through a door down to the seashore, to the beaches, to the waiting boats and the ships. And when you left that door, there was no return. You left your ancestors behind you and you sailed to a new country. So you see me kneeling here because when I went there, I was so inspired until I had to get on my knees and pray. And that's what motivated me to write, to write, to write, to write. Thank you so much.